Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had, no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he, was in, while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. They did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home, marveling at what had happened. All right, good morning, church. So I want to start off with uh, just kind of setting the stage. This book right here says a lot of things, a lot of beautiful things, a lot of promises that are unimaginable, exceedingly more than we could ask or think. It also has dreadful warnings that we could never dare imagine or dream of. But how do we have confidence that what this book says is true? Especially in light of last week's text, as we're talking about the death of Jesus and what that accomplished in our place, that we now have access and intimacy with God instead of enmity with God. Jesus has bridged that gap and that chasm in between us, and now we can have access and our sins forgiven and have intimacy with God. That's the greatest news that we could ever have, and how do we know that's true? If this is not true, we're most to be pitied. We're wasting our time here, our time, our energy, our money our whole lives. But if it is true, it's the greatest news ever. It has endless implications for our life. So how do we have confidence that Jesus indeed died for our sins? What if Jesus was this master manipulator and he wanted to empower certain men to exude control over other people groups and, and live for their own selves? What if the disciples were actually sincere men, but the most gullible men of all time? What if all this was just made up? In this morning's text, we're going to dive into the burial and also the empty tomb of Jesus. We're going to explore whether Jesus truly rose from the dead. And this is one of the most important matters you could ever consider. The fact is, most skeptics, they have issues with this, not because they've carefully considered the claims of Christ and what happened on that Easter morning, but because they just haven't even thought of it. 
because they've already written off as untrue. But let me say this. If the resurrection is true, then all of this is true. If the resurrection is false, then none of it is true. So the stakes are laid. They're heavy. They're big. And so with that set, that table set, let's look carefully at our text this morning. What we're going to look at is how do we have confidence that Jesus truly rose from the dead? Let's look at our text in verse 50. The burial. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, remember the Sanhedrin, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. Now, I'm going to fly pretty quickly through the end of chapter 23 to get to the meat of our text in chapter 24, but let me make a few important comments. The account that we are reading, notice I'm using the word account, starts off noting a man's name, his position, where he's from. And this is a really important point because this is a reoccurring theme throughout Luke. Because remember how Luke starts off his gospel. I'm going to remind you, it's on the screen. Luke chapter 1, verse 3 through 4. Luke said, (laughs) eventually he'll be up there. I can't even see if there's anybody up there. Okay, great. It's up there. Great. Next one. Okay, so... Luke chapter 1, verse 3 through 4. Luke is writing. He says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you, why? The purpose? That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Throughout the gospel of Luke, we see this reoccurring theme that there are specific places and times and people because Luke is trying to help believers have confidence and certainty that this is true. So something so benign and so random and and non-consequential as Joseph of Arimathea, who was this in part of the Sanhedrin, seems like nothing, but it actually is significant because in this time when Luke wrote this book, those people were still alive. So if you have questions, you could just go up to these people. I mean, these claims were significant. So you wouldn't just be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're telling me that Joseph was there? Cool. I'm good by me. No, 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 no. Are you serious? What they're saying is so revolutionary, so consequential, that these people could just go to Joseph and say, Joseph, were you there? Did you do these things? And he could either confirm it or deny it. And that is a significant theme throughout Luke and Acts and also 1 Corinthians that you will see. So I just want to remind you that this right here is a historical document. This is an orderly account for you, for us, for the world. Now, back to Joseph. He was a good and righteous man. In other texts, we actually see that he was a disciple of Jesus. The Gospel of John makes that clear. And we see that he did not consent to the decision. Because what we see in Mark chapter 14 is that all of the Sanhedrin condemned Jesus unlawfully. They put the sham trial. But it seems like people like Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea were not there. Now, how could that work? Well, do you remember that when they um, put Jesus on trial, it was at a really weird time of the day? They did it in a weird place. Not the normal courtyard that they would do it. They, they rushed it along. It, it's kind of what you would do when you're trying to force a verdict in your favor and making sure the wrong kinds of people were not there to stop 
your heinous crimes. So that's kind of what is going on here. But Joseph cares about Jesus. Joseph is hoping that Jesus is the answer for the kingdom of God to come. So what does he do? Verse 52, he boldly goes up. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where there was no one had ever been laid, ever yet been laid. Now, I was trying to not fly through this text, but as I was prepping over this passage, I was trying to meditate on the horrific and traumatizing and jarring visual of my Lord Jesus' lifeless body. Just imagine that Joseph, a disciple of Jesus, and I believe John was there, and his mother was there, and other women were there, and they are holding the lifeless body of Jesus. Let, let, let no one make the claim that Jesus was actually sleeping or unconscious. They knew a dead body when they found it. And so what they did is Joseph put it in the tomb that his family purchased, and yet no one had yet used that tomb, which without him knowing, I believe he was fulfilling a prophecy, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. And they made, would you read this with me? And they made his grave with the wicked. God's word always comes true in his way, in his time. We see that this promise made thousands of years, hundreds of years before, coming down perfectly. Back to our text, Luke 23, 54 it was the day of preparation. Just a side note, day of preparation is the day before Shabbat to get ready for Shabbat. You can't just take a whole day off and observe it without preparing for it. So I just want to remind you, for those of you guys who try to practice a regular Sabbath every week, you can't just accidentally stumble into rest. You have to prepare for rest. So just a good reminder for that. I need to remind myself of that. So the day of preparation is there and the Sabbath was beginning, so they could not finish the embalming process. They have to rush it along to make sure they don't do it and work on the Sabbath. So verse 55, the woman who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandments. Now, there's a few important reasons. This is probably in our text for today. But let me just highlight at least one, that it demonstrates that these women who were faithful followers of Jesus were not expecting the resurrection. You don't embalm a dead body if you know it's going to rise in a few days. It's an extremely expensive expense to do such a thing. You do it because you think the body is dead. You think because... It's no hope. It's all over. And that's really important for us to remember. So we'll get back to that point over and over again. So they, they embalm his body, and they rest on the Sabbath, and then the following day they come early morning to finish the job, putting spices on him as you normally would for a dead person. Now this is where things get really interesting. Chapter 24, verse 1, the empty tomb. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. 
But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. The women come, and to their shock, the tomb is already opened. As they go in, they find the body of Jesus was nowhere to be found. Now, a quick aside, and I'm going to do a handful of quick asides because there's, there's some important things that can trip up people. Sometimes people get tripped up on the days. Jesus dies, and he's risen three days later. And yet, if you're counting, you're like, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, sounds like he was only dead for one day. But this is important for us to remember that when we read the Bible, we're reading, we are crossing bridges. When we try to interpret the Bible, we often assume that what our culture does is what their culture does. And so that we impose that onto the text. And I just want to let you know that in the Jewish culture, they counted days not like we did. So Friday would be the first day. He died on Friday. Saturday would be the second day, and he rose on the third day. And that's how the Jewish people counted time. And this is just a great reminder for us to be careful that we impose our way of understanding the world upon the Bible's culture and worldview and time. When we do that, we get in a lot of trouble. And this is just a good thing to do anytime you read any historical document that is different from us via time, language, culture. Now, back to our text. Verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, notice the word perplexed. They don't say, hallelujah, Jesus is alive, but confusion. Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Who are these two men? Well, if you look at the other gospels, we see that these are angels. When you are in the presence of light, the source of light, the God of light, what happens is you eventually start to reflect his light. We see this in the transfiguration as well. And so these angels who look like men, are radiating light, dazzling light. Now, if you were a careful reader of the Bible and you've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, they all have different accounts of the resurrection. You will notice some differences as we look at the angels and differences of these scenes. Now, another aside that's important to know that that's okay. The gospel is seen through different lenses. We have, there's a famous book called Four Portraits of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all see Jesus from a different lens, and that's a good thing. Coming from their different focuses, their different personalities, their different backgrounds, they're going to highlight different things. And with all four portraits together, we get a better, more clear picture of our Lord Jesus. And they will highlight different details, but these details are not mutually exclusive. They're not contradictory. They are just highlighting different facts. Any of the differences you've seen between any of the Gospels never take away from the main message of the Gospel. And so I remember when I was a new believer and I saw these differences, I had many crises of faith. Because for me, I could not fathom God's word being true if there's any little differences in, in like, oh, one angel or two angel and all these kinds of things. I just simply didn't understand how literature worked, and I didn't understand how different eyewitnesses would emphasize different realities. In fact, without getting into details with this too much, that if you are an investigator and you hear a bunch of stories and they're, all, they're identical without any differences, you will often conclude that they're actually colluding together to create the story. The fact that there's differences of emphasis but the same message actually proves the validity of the account. Okay, I can't get into that. Now, living among the dead. Let's look at this really powerful verse. Verse 5. And they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, 
Why do you seek the living among the dead? The women think Jesus is dead, so they're going to places where dead people are, i.e. a tomb. But this question, why do you seek the living among the dead, is, is a mild, gentle rebuke because it, it, it's a leading question, helping them process. The, the angels aren't asking the question because they don't know the answer. They're, what they're trying to do is help, help the, the women understand Jesus more fully because they're missing they're not understanding Jesus, understanding his word, understanding what he is doing, what he is about. Verse 6. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. Listen, the body isn't missing because someone moved Jesus' body, but because Jesus moved out of the tomb himself. He has risen! Oh, ah, yeah, I didn't set you guys up for that well, did I? Yeah, I was like, man, it's not Easter, but maybe I can pull it off. He is risen! All right, you got to do that when you can, all right. Now, at this point, many preachers will then go on a long, 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 long list of explanations of the empty tomb. They're going to pull from Lee Strobel's Case for Christ or Gary Habermas's Great Work or N.T. Wright's and talk about all the different um, evidences of the empty tomb and how that bolsters our faith and gives us great confidence. And all those can be helpful. If any of you guys have read those books or, or seen the documentaries, they're helpful. And the reality is the empty tomb is evidence that demands a verdict. You have to make a decision on why there's an empty tomb. Where did Jesus' body go? And even you got guys like Bart Ehrman, who are, who's no longer a professing Christian, who's a skeptic, can, cannot deny the fact that there is an empty tomb. And all the different explanations, the swoon theory, all these different theories all fall flat, flat in, in the face of any thoughtful scholarship. Now, I'm not going to spend our time. I had three pages that I cut this morning because I like, ah, I just can't do it. I can't fit it. But if you want to get into that, I'd recommend you read the book, The Case for the Resurrection by, of Jesus by Gary Habermas, if you're interested in more detailed re- evidences of the resurrection, you know, like the explosion of the early church, the transformation of the cowardly disciples, on and on again. There's so much evidence to show, to point, of the validity of the resurrection and what God has done and is doing. And yet, I'm not going to get into all those details because they're readily available. You can look it up, and if you need more resources, come talk with me. But because that's not the point of our text. Here's what I mean by that. What do the angels point to as evidence to be enough for the disciples to believe? What do they point to? Do they say, hey, have you heard this, this book, Case for Christ? Right? Do, do they point to these documentaries? Do they, do they do any of that? No, what do they do? Look at verse 6 and 8 again. He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. What do the angels point to? His words. Jesus' words. Multiple times Jesus said this would happen. Let's look at 1 Luke chapter 9, verse 22. Oh, we're everywhere. Okay, Luke chapter 9, verse 22, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Jesus said this multiple times. And apparently, Jesus simply saying that this would happen should be enough for the women to believe it would happen. They didn't need to see Jesus' risen body yet. They just needed to remember his words. 
The empty tomb was not needed. An encounter with the risen Jesus was not needed, but just his words. And that just hit me this week like a, like a brick. Not a ton of bricks, because it needs to go deeper from my heart, my hard heart. But I'm just trying to marvel and think about that and ponder. Does, do I, do the Sam Choi really believe in the power, the authority, the trustworthiness of this word like that? I don't need to see his body to know that it's true because he said it would happen. Do you have that much kind of confidence in God's word? Does it have that much weight? Is his word as good as done? We see this played out later in this chapter, but also in John's gospel. Pastor Daniel will get into it more, but if you guys are familiar with the Apostle Thomas, or as many people have called him, Doubting Thomas. Let's look at chapter 20 of John. It's going to be not on the screens, I can tell, actually. It's my bad. Sorry. If anyone's like, oh, what are they doing up there? It's my fault. Don't blame them. Thank you for serving. Now, in in John chapter 20, Thomas has heard the good news. Thomas, who walked with Jesus for years, heard the good news that Jesus has risen. And doubting Thomas says, man, I don't believe that. I don't believe that one bit. If he's real, I need to touch him. I need to put my hands in where, the, where his scars are, where he was nailed. And, and this is what happens. After he says that in verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. All the doors were locked. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Did you catch that last verse? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This flies in the face of all that is in our naturalist society. Because what we see, what we say is, seeing is believing. You have to see before you can believe. And yet, according to Jesus, you don't have to see to believe. His word is enough to believe. Jesus' word is enough for us to believe. It was enough for them to believe. It's enough for us to believe. Yet, I understand and I realize the objections some of you may raise and what I have raised in the past. You, you may say this. You say, Sam, that's a circular argument. You know what a circular argument is? It's kind of like this. Uh, the Bible says that God is real, so therefore the God is real, because the Bible says it, right? That, that's, people will say that's a circular argument, or in this situation, you can't assert that Jesus rose from the dead because the Bible says Jesus rose from the dead, and the Bible says the Bible is true, so therefore it's true. That's circular reasoning. If you struggle with this, we can have a longer conversation about that. I'm not going to do justice in just the few 30 seconds I'm going to give this. But in short, I would say that there are many internal, within here, and external good reasons to believe in the truths of these scriptures, in the truths of the resurrection of Christ. And yet, though external evidences can be helpful for us, if we truly understand this to be God's word, that this book does not, catch this keyword, need external confirmations for it to be true. I'm going to say that again. 
If this is truly God's word, it's the final authority, then although external evidences are helpful, they're not needed to confirm that this is true. What I mean by that is, if this is truly God's word, then follow. Wouldn't the assumption be that he wouldn't need other things to confirm it to be true? If it was absolutely authoritative in God's word, it would not need other things to be true. But yet we have found many other things that corroborate the truths of this scripture. But it's not dependent on external things to make this true. Are you, are you tracking with me? Some people are like, oh, oh, oh. my mind is in circle, Sam. I, I'm simply putting is this. If you do good research, there are so many things that help bolster our faith and confidence that this is God's word. There's plenty. Any, any, any clever, different objection you think you have, other people have thought it hundreds of thousands of years before you have. Okay, trust me. All right? And there's lots of good reasons that help. And I've studied those, and they've helped me, especially in moments of crises. But the Bible doesn't need it. If it truly is God's authoritative word, and I believe it is because of internal and external reasons then it is not dependent on those things. Because if it was dependent on those external things, then those things would be the authority. You appeal to external authorities when you are not enough. And the Bible is enough. It doesn't need other people to say, oh, can you verify and validate that I'm true? No, it does not need those things. But because it is true, it would have lots of different things that would corroborate it is true. I think that was clear? Yeah? Okay, all right, cool, cool. All right. So if God's word was good enough for the early church, it should be good enough for us. Again, do I believe that? And yet, I know that my hard heart over the years can constantly demand, God, show me, prove to me. We put ourselves on the judgment seat. God, I will tell you if you're good or not. I will tell you if you are real or not. You have to show me and be good enough for me or answer my prayers in a certain way or do some miracle right now. To show me that you are real or trustworthy. And so my prayer, church, is that, oh God, let us have that kind of faith that the Holy Spirit would produce in us, that kind of confidence in God's word, that, that despite challenging circumstances or our own doubts, or our own sin, or our own shame, that we can bank all of our heart into this word. Everything. You can bank on this. And may that go deeper for our church this season. Now, after the disciples, or actually these women, hear the good news and remember God's word, what do they do? Verse 9. So we'll be on the screen. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. What do you do when you hear really good news? You share it. You share good news. Now, it's important to note, who were the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection? Look at verse 10. It's not on the screen. Man, I screwed up this week. Well, hopefully you have your Bible. Verse 10. Now, who are these women? It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. So who were the first witnesses? Women. Women. Now, before you get mad at me for saying it like that, I'm just merely saying it in the way that the first century would say. Women? Do you realize how significant this is? So often we hear that the Bible is misogynistic and belittles women, but do you realize that the Bible elevates the true dignity and wonder and beauty and value of women more than any other religion out there? And I would even say any modern feminist movement out there. 
Women are so important and valuable to Jesus, and they ought to be for us too. And yet historically, many in the church have belittled women and used power to use against women. But that is not something you will find in the Bible. That's something that sinful men do. They take perfect truth, good truth, loving truth, loving authority, gentle authority, and they warp it for their own sinful desires. So don't let what man has done, done take away from what the Bible does, what the Bible says. It's so important to note that these women were the ones who stayed with Jesus till he died. If you look at 23 verse 49, the, these women were with Jesus. It was the women, Mary, mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, a few others, and also the, the apostle John. And this is important to note because the women were there with him while all the other disciples fled, except John, were with Jesus at his death, and the women were there at the empty tomb. And what does Jewish law require to confirm anything? Two or three witnesses. And the women were there for both the death and the resurrection. They were not deceived. They did not deceive and think that he was sleeping. They knew he was dead, deader than dead. And yet they were able to witness firsthand the empty tomb. Now, how would these mighty apostles respond to this great news? Verse 11. Would you read this out loud? But these words... There are so many lessons to be learned from these few verses. Let me give you three quick ones. Number one, there is powerful evidence for the resurrection and the Bible's accuracy. Number two, it's a strong warning for us. And number three, a, a reminder for us in evangelism. So first of all, let me start with a warning. These mighty apostles, these men, these pillars, they walk with Jesus in the flesh nearly night and day for three years. And Jesus had told them over and over that this is going to happen that he would die, he would suffer, he would rise from the dead. And yet when it happens, they are not, they don't believe it. When they're given hard evidence and facts that he did rise, they don't say, hallelujah, we knew it. They consider it silliness. They mock the women. This, is not a, this does not look good for the apostles here. The language used here, an idle tale, it's, it's demeaning kind of language. Oh, you women, so emotional. Like, seriously, that's, that's how they're thinking of it. Their, their mind is so far removed from looking for a resurrection. They're completely, that's not even in their worldview right now in their mindset. And this is a strong warning for us. It really is, church, that we can hear God's word day and day and night, reading the Bible, hear it week after week from sermons, and yet we are absolutely dull to the reality of these words. We can memorize the words and not believe a single word of these words. We not believe them, not apply them. The author Mark Twain once said, It's not what I don't understand about the Bible that bothers me. It's what I do understand. The reality is the majority of the Bible is understandable. Yes, it can be challenging, but a lot of it is just challenging to receive and apply, not to understand. And the apostles, Jesus was very clear about his words. He was not using crazy, weird analogies that they had to decode. He said it plain as day. They just could not receive it. And so often we can hear over and over again God's word and we just not receive it. It's hard to receive, hard to apply, but it's not hard to understand a lot of times. It's just clear as day. And we have to take warning, especially if you go to church regularly, that your heart doesn't get in a place where it can endlessly hear and never do, never respond. 
never receive, never worship. Second point I want to make, the evidence of the resurrection in God's word. This poor response from the apostles is also a very powerful evidence for us in the resurrection in God's word. Let me explain. The response of the apostles demonstrate that they were not looking for the resurrection. And all of us here have experienced what many have called, um, what, am I, what did I write? Confirmation bias, right? We all know that. We've all done it. We all do it regularly, right? In, in other words, when we want something in our hearts, we will conveniently highlight the things that would bolster our desire and confirm our bias, and then we'll kind of sweep anything that would push against our narrative or our bias, right? We all do this. We, we see this politically all the time. We all need to fight this challenge. And the reason why I'm bringing up confirmation bias here is that it's clear that it's not occurring with the disciples. They're not longing for Jesus' risen body and to see the risen Christ, and therefore they're hallucinating and trying to fabricate or kind of make things, oh, did you see that? It's like, like, like Sasquatch, you know, like, oh, I saw him. He's in the trees. and Oh, yeah, I saw him too, yeah, right? Like, we don't have this confirmation bias thing going on where they're trying to make it happen. They don't want to make it happen because they're not even considering it to happen. And that's actually powerful evidence. They laugh off direct evidence of the resurrection. This demonstrates they were not looking for it at all, even though Jesus told them that would rise again. So this demonstrates that the authors of Scripture wrote about the resurrection, not because they really wanted there to be one, because they didn't, but because it happened, and they were convinced of it despite their dullness. They wrote about it because it happened. This whole embarrassing scene is also evidence towards the validity of the scriptures. Sometimes skeptics say that the Bible is concocted by men in order to put themselves in power and, and put oppress other people groups and, and to serve them. And yet these accusations, if you read history and you read the biblical accounts, just do not hold up. They don't. When you read the Bible, you see that the stars of the early church regularly look like idiots. They regularly show their failings, their dullness, and it simply does not read as if they were trying to set up something up, orchestrate it, con concoct some sort of religion in a way that would set themselves up to look good. In fact, almost every single apostle lived in poverty, were constantly persecuted and tortured, and almost all of them were martyred for Christ. <laughs> you don't do that for a lie. Lots of people die for lies all the time, but nobody dies for lies that they know to be a lie. Tracking me? If anyone knew this was a lie, it would be the apostles. And they went to their death, proclaiming in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Furthermore, if the writers of Scripture wanted to set things up in a way that guaranteed the highest reception, they would not have included women to be the first witnesses. Sadly, in Jewish law, women's testimony was not included in the court of law. They did not honor women as they ought to have at that time. And when we look at the scene, it's the women who are the first witnesses and believers of Christ's resurrection, not the men. That makes the men look bad. They look, they look dense. They look like unbelievers in these moments. So why would all these accounts include, being, include the women here? Because the women were there. <laughs> and authors were committed to giving us an accurate account of what happened. Final point for this section, a reminder for us witnessing. The apostles' reaction is a helpful encouragement for us 
when we are trying to witness and proclaim the resurrection of Jesus to our friends, family, or coworkers. Because the reality is, who were the first skeptics of Jesus? The apostles. The first skeptics of Jesus were the apostles. And yet these, these guys walked with Jesus for three days, saw miracles, saw his life, saw that he was perfect. There was in him, there was no sin, no sin at all. They knew all these things. And yet, even with all that background, three years of walking with him, knowing the Torah, knowing all this stuff, they didn't believe. And yet we have one conversation with a friend and they struggle to believe or they mock and we're like, ah, you know, I dust my shoes off of you, you know? Be patient. Think about it. We are, if you do not have the Holy Spirit working in someone's heart, what we are saying sounds insane and absurd. That they need to have reconciliation with the God, right? That Jesus rose from the dead, defeating death, and will come back and make all things right. That sounds insane. If you grew up in church, that doesn't sound insane because you're so conditioned. But just remember where people are coming from when you share the gospel with them. This is insanity to them unless the Holy Spirit changed them. So be patient, church, just like Jesus was patient with the apostles. <laughs> Back to the text. Peter's response. But instead of mocking or disbelieving, Peter, the best friend who denied Jesus, takes off running to the tomb. Verse 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. And I love gospels. the Gospel of John. Kind of conveniently includes that John beat, beat Peter in the race. John being the youngest, so had young legs under him. Verse 12, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This word marvel does not mean believe, but it doesn't necessarily mean believe, but undoubtedly there in Peter's broken, shame-filled heart is hope rising. Maybe these words are true. Maybe he did rise from the game. Maybe I can see him in the face and get reconciled with him. Maybe I can get another chance. And indeed, Jesus does. Jesus does give Peter another chance. Peter had already learned the stupidity and foolishness of doubting Jesus' words because Jesus' words came perfectly true when the rooster crowed at the third denial and the Lord Jesus looked at him in the eyes. Jesus knew in that moment that Jesus' words come true. And Peter already learned that lesson, and perhaps Peter is slowly learning that's here. So let me land the plane here. How shall we now live and respond? I don't know if you picked this up, but Jesus is nowhere to be found in our passage. Nowhere in our passage do we see that Jesus rose from the dead. We only see the effects. We don't get a scene where we're like, all of a sudden, Jesus is standing there like Jim Caviezel and staring out and the light is shining and all this stuff is happening, right? We don't get that scene in the gospel accounts. And I don't know all the reasons why, but simply put, they weren't there. They were witnesses of what happened, but they weren't there when Jesus rose from the dead, but they got to see all the effects. But I think that's really helpful for us because the apostles and the women were not, were in a similar boat as us. And what I mean that, by that is they had Jesus' word that he would rise as the first and primary reason why they should hope in Jesus' resurrection. And you know what we have? We have Jesus' words too. We're in a similar boat in many ways. In other ways, not. I'll get that there in a second. But Jesus, in his kindness, eventually reveals himself to them. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to study the resurrection more, make sure you look at that later this evening. 
But 1 Corinthians 15 shows that all of this happened according to the scriptures, according to the scripture, over and over again, the scriptures. And yet, Jesus reveals himself to the apostles and many others and 500 others. And so there's both the validity and authority of God's word being enough, and yet Jesus in his kindness revealing himself bodily to many, many hundreds of eyewitnesses. Both are true. So that's why I said earlier that the Bible, one of the reasons why the Bible is not circular reasoning is because the Bible has internal evidence and external evidence, and the external evidence being one of them, being many eyewitnesses. Am I speaking fast? I am. But this is going to be the same for many of us. We have God's word and only his word, and we don't have the risen Jesus manifesting himself physically unless you have an encounter like the Apostle Paul, which I pray that would happen. But the word of Jesus is what we have. We can't go and check all the eyewitnesses anymore because most of them are long dead now. But as we saw, Jesus' word is enough. And have I said that enough? Jesus' word is enough. In the coming weeks, we're going to see how Jesus reveals himself in his bodily risen self to many disciples and eyewitnesses. Pastor Daniel's going to get that next week. But I want to take this opportunity for all of us as a church to reconsider how much do we trust God's word? How much do we bank all of our hopes and all of our confidence, all of our security in this word? Like I said in the beginning, if Jesus rose from the dead, then all of this is true. If he did not, none of this is true. So listen, church, Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. We can have confidence that we too will rise with him. And this is a great hope for the Christian. Not that one day when we die, we get to be with heaven. That is true. But what will happen, according to Revelation 21, and that's why we have it in, our, in our, our symbol for our church, is that the new heavens, the holy of holies, will come down. The heaven will come down onto this earth and remake this earth. We will all have resurrected bodies. When Jesus comes back, he will right every wrong. He'll destroy sin and death forever. No more sin, no more suffering, no more COVID, no more strife, no more wars, no more Putin, no more any of that. And we will have peace with God on this resurrected earth with real bodies not floating in the clouds, real bodies, food, drink, fun with Jesus. Amen? Amen? That's the resurrected hope that we have waiting for us. And that's so important for us to remember. And so let Jesus' word on his resurrection give us fresh hope and confidence of our future resurrection that is coming. Jesus' resurrection is confidence and evidence that one day we too will be Resurrected, And that's good news that, listen, church, we will all die. Unless Jesus comes in this lifetime, we will all die, but we will all rise if we are trusting in Jesus. That leads me to this final point. Verse 7 of chapter 24. I skipped over quickly, but I'll read it again. That the Son of Man, it's not on the screen, I'm sorry. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. There's a key word here, easily missed, if you read it quickly. This word, must. The Son of Man must be delivered into the sinful man. Why did Jesus have to die for us? Well, I said last week that Jesus must die if true forgiveness could be granted. Because like I said, the penalty of sin, according to the Bible, is death. And Jesus willingly died as a propitiation for our sins. You remember that big word I taught last week? Propitiation. In other words, he absorbed the rightful wrath and punishment that you and I deserved. Jesus willingly took our place, absorbed the punishment so that God could treat us as if we never did anything wrong ever before. 
And so that is a great confidence for us. Because Jesus is alive, we can really trust his word. We can take it to the bank that your sins are forgiven, church. If you are confessing and hoping in Jesus, no matter how much shame you are feeling, no matter how dark the darkness is and the the past is looming over you, haunting you, you can take it to the bank that you are forgiven. And the resurrection gives us hope that what Jesus did on the cross was accepted by the Father. It was a more than sufficient sacrifice for us, and we can take it to the bank. So right now, if you're feeling full of shame for something you did last night or this week or this year or 50 years ago, you can say, you know what, I still struggle with that, but I can trust you, Jesus, that you have been my sacrifice. You are sufficient, and I'm forgiven before the Father because of your word. And because you rose from the dead, God said, that is enough for your sin and my sin. But if you are here this morning and you are not trusting in God's word and actively following him, then you cannot have peace that you have peace with God. You can have comfort that you have peace with God. You, you can't have that right now. If you are standing in rebellion towards God, you then will, on the final judgment day, stand alone without a substitute, without someone standing in your place, Jesus. But you know what? You do not have to be alone. If you put your trust in Jesus this morning, you can be forgiven, you can be received, and you will rise again when Jesus comes and makes all things new. Jesus died and made a way for you to have peace with God, do not leave that peace on the table. It's for you to take without condition. Not because you're from the right blood or you look the right way or you have enough money or you have a good enough clean record, but because you put your hope and trust in Jesus. Free gift. Receive it. Repent, believe, and be baptized. Come talk with one of us today. And for the rest of us, I just want to remind you one again because Christ rose from the dead, you too will be raised from the dead. If you get buried in some, some coffin here, you'll be busting out of there one day. If you're cremated, God will figure out how to do that, right? But that gives us so much hope, church. The world has no antidote for death. Maybe they'll find a way to cure cancer. Maybe they'll find a way to cure this or that. But death, they'll never cure. But Jesus has cured it. And because of the resurrection, we can have great hope. Even if you, are, if you are already on the latter part of your life and your body is starting to fail you and you are feeling the frailty of your body, you can have great hope that you will have a new body one day. Because Jesus got a new body, you're going to get a new resurrected body. So for, for the youngest in here to the oldest, we have great hope and great confidence to live through this really challenging life because of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this great news. Thank you, Lord, for the resurrection Help us freshly have hope. Help our hearts well up with this hope and confidence. Despite all the different challenges of our world that would discourage our hearts, that would fill us with doubt and fear, we have a sure, more confident word in you. Help us have a fresh confidence in God's word and trust your word. And if anybody here has been struggling with trusting your word, fill their heart with fresh confidence. Lord, we repent for the times we doubt you. We repent for the times that we put you on the judgment seat and we judge you, seeing if you're good enough, measuring if you're faithful enough. Lord, forgive us for those times. You were God, we were not. We humble ourselves before you. We trust you in your word. We trust you in your plans, even when it doesn't always make sense. Put our hope in you, God. And Father, if there's anybody here who does not know you, 
They don't have peace with you. Maybe they know the right things to say, but they actually don't know you. They're not going to be resurrected one day. They will stand alone on the judgment day. If that's the case for anyone here, Lord, work in their heart right now. We want them to be with us forever. Extend your mercy and forgiveness and work in their hearts. And Father, if there's anything I said that did not represent your word correctly, would you correct me and let everyone here know better than that? But everything that is true and is right, is faithful to this word, let it deeply transform us and fill us afresh with hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.